A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, this is Victoria Meyer. Welcome to The Chemical Show. Today, I am speaking with John Richardson, who is a senior consultant at ICIS. John's been on the show a number of times in class, including most recently episode 36. You can go listen to that as he shares his views on what's going on across the chemicals industry, polymers in particular, and with a close view to China and the impacts that the market has. So anyway, John, welcome to The Chemical Show. Thank you, Victoria. Yeah. Glad to have you back on your episodes. I got to tell you are always popular. I kind of keep track of which episodes are people listening to and they're listening to yours, Sean. So that's a good sign. We've got a lot of relatives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you And a lot of friends in the audience that are happy to hear your insights. So recording this here at the end of 2022. And I think if we go all the way back to the beginning of the year, there was this whole expectation that the world and China was going to be coming out of the doldrums, if you will, that were caused by COVID, supply chain disruptions, et cetera. And I don't think we've really seen this. So how is the year manifested when you, from where you're sitting, when you're looking at polymers markets and the European and Asian markets? Well, Victoria, I think, you know, they, well, you would have expected some kind of moderation of growth in China anyway, because what people, I think, didn't fully realize was the extent to which China benefited from the pandemic boom. It was all the China in, China out story we talked about before. So all the chemicals and polymers going to China, re-exported yeah. as durable goods we were buying in lockdown in the rich world. So you always expected a moderation of growth, but you'd expect growth still to be very positive and, of course, a much bigger base of tons. So people were saying China's going to get stronger. I didn't really get that because how could it get stronger relative to what was already a fantastic 2021, 2020? Right, that True. didn't make sense. And of course, what we none of us foresaw was zero COVID from March onwards. You already had the structural slow a slowdown in the Chinese economy. We can talk about the later called common prosperity, which you, that meant that China's growth was going to be lower over the longer term, right? We had the deleveraging of the real estate sector, which is worth 29% of GDP. And you can look at our data at ICIS and you see that a lot of chemical demand growth since 2009 has been driven by that real estate sector, the tremendous demand yeah. growth, leading China to have a biggest share globally than it had before, much bigger. So we mm -hmm. knew that trend was working through as they pushed for more income equality, better capital allocation away from speculative property. So that was going to moderate growth as well over time. But bang, zero COVID. And yeah. the government is now... Well, through the year, I thought, hold on, they cannot relax zero COVID because the effectiveness of Chinese vaccines wanes over time. Yeah. So if you have three... So really quickly, what zero COVID is. So zero COVID was this policy that China had of 
no COVID, tra- I mean, no COVID transmissions. I mean, my, all right. So from the outside looking in, all it meant to me was really just even more and more shutdowns whenever there was a case. What did zero COVID mean to China? It meant we're going to have zero cases. We're going to aim to eradicate the disease, not live with it. So Anthony Fauci is just resigning, isn't he? He was resigning, he's retiring. And he said today in the FT, it makes no sense whatsoever, which you can't eradicate the virus, right? Yeah, this so, is not a yeah. this is not a disease like let's just say polio, where there yeah. was a global process to eradicate polio, which is oh, mostly cholera. Yeah. or cholera yeah. or something else. Yeah, COVID is a very different disease or virus, I guess. Well, it's not serious to start with. I mean, yes, yeah. it's killed a lot of people, underestimating how terrible it is. But compared with cholera, or, and it can't be eradicated. You have to live with it. But China said we're going to eradicate it, and the problem is twofold. First. Chinese vaccines, the Sinovac, the effectiveness wanes over time, whereas the mRNA vaccines, the overseas vaccines, it lasts longer. They've got very low vaccination rates among the over 60s and the over 80s. I'm stuck at home, can't get to vaccine centres for whatever reasons. They're very low vaccination rates, and of course, they're the most vulnerable, and they will not import foreign vaccines. That's the problem. And the healthcare system, if they suddenly said tomorrow, right, we're going to get rid of zero COVID tomorrow. I mean, everyone's getting excited about this a few weeks ago. They're relaxing the quarantine regulations, weren't they? The markets went crazy. I think it's Fudan University est- estimated there were 1.5 million deaths from an exit wave. And the hospitals wow. are, not, are not equipped to cope with the number of serious cases in the context of the waning effectiveness of vaccines. So that was clear really from April this year. See that from just reading the medical journals. And so when people said, Zero COVID is going to come to an end. There'll be a massive boom in chemicals demand. There's no doubt that will happen. Right? When they get past zero COVID, it'll go great. Chemical markets will boom as people come out and spend lots of money. Zero COVID means you're locked down in your condo. You, the restaurants are shut. The shops are shut. You're sometimes almost frightened to go out in case you get picked up and taken to a government quarantine centre. Sure. Good friends in Shanghai, it's like that. I don't know, should I go out? For a while, there was a real problem delivering stuff to people's condos because the delivery drivers didn't want to go to a different suburb because the zero COVID rules vary by different districts. So uh, you think you're finding your own okay. district, move to another district, and you end up uh, taken off to a government quarantine centre because the rules are yeah. quite arbitrary because the local officials are trying to please Beijing by being extra zealous. And it's almost like we don't worry about the economic damage but the issue is, how did he get past this? Well, first of all, they need to get do something about vaccinations, right? Yes. Issue. Yeah. Secondly, they need to prepare for that exit, exit weight by investing a fortune in hospitals. And as I said, throughout the year, I was, I was saying, we're not going to get, not going to end zero COVID anytime soon. People say, yes, they're going to end it. And no. we've seen with the data on the chemicals markets, now look at polyolefins, as you know, progressively through the year, we've seen with the net import numbers and our estimates of local production, that we're moving to negative growth or flat growth across the polyolefin, LDP being the worst, but that's to do with other reasons to do with its relative expense, the very expensive LDP versus linear low. Right. Linear low, minus 2%, polypropylene might just get to 1% this year, growth possibly off flat. HGP, minus 2% thing, and then LDP, minus 6%, which is third year of decline, it would be. That's what the latest data is suggesting. And at the start of the year, people said, oh, we're looking at 6 to 7% growth across linear H and PP. Maybe low is going to be weak. People accepted that. So this is a massive right. change from expectations. And we're getting 
almost end of the year now, aren't we, with the data. So how much is that, when you think about the growth or the negative growth, the losses, I guess, retraction, is about export versus domestic demand in China, right? And I know that's kind of hard to measure because a lot of stuff's getting produced into goods and then getting shipped. So where is this really a function, not just of moderation globally, but really just the whole zero COVID in China and shutting down the domestic economy? I think it started with the domestic economy. I think it's that loss of consumer confidence. And I must mention the property bill as well, which... uh, The government put option was that we will never let land prices and property prices fall. So that was in place for 20 years. So people yeah. would invest in property, second or third, fourth properties, some very rich people. And they would buy land, even though the property hadn't been built, on the assumption the developer would be fine financially, because the government would always rescue the property developers. And that's gone, because land prices and home prices are falling. So that's a big factor as well, which you mentioned that loss of domestic. As I said, you can really link that booming stimulus since 2009 into chemicals demand, and most of that stimulus went into real estate. So you saw China retake off in terms of global share of consumption of chemicals and polymers. So it's domestic, people not willing to spend money, shut at home. For a while, I think at least they couldn't get the deliveries of the stuff online, and that's a lot of packaging, a lot of internet packaging. I think more lately, we still saw reasonable export growth, I think, certainly in pricing, because of course prices went up. But we're now seeing, I think, significant volume falls of Chinese exports, which is 20% of GDP. That's more recently, I think, last few months, couple of months. Two things there. Logistics problems still around the, the Guangdong province, enormous export processing province, Guangdong, for example. They've got some lockdowns there again. And of course, you've got the inflation in the West, which is now affecting an, an inevitable cycle out of durable goods demand post-pandemic as people have bought the washing machines. They buy a washing machine once every few years. You probably brought that purchase forward, didn't you, when you had government stimulus? So that's affecting that 20% of the... So it's getting worse because of that domestic, that the export slowdown last couple of months, I think. Got it. Interesting. So what's the... I mean, so when we think about just what has happened, was there what other surprises were there? If we look at where the year started and where the year is ending... Are there any other surprises that have changed polyethylene, polypropylene in Europe and Asia? And then I guess well, the I think, effect is globally, right? Because it, yeah, it's a global market effectively. Yeah. I think the biggest surprise for me was that I thought China was doing a really good job on the pandemic, and it's not. And that surprised me. And that really from March onwards, April, you start to say, just read the medical journals and you will see that they, they have not been a good, doing a good job on the vaccine because... Yeah. On the pandemic, sorry, because of the weakness of Chinese vaccines and the politics of importing foreign vaccines. To me, that was a big surprise. Um, a second big surprise is the extent to which the China has cut operating rates. And normally we haven't seen that because China runs hard to keep people in jobs in the washing machine factory downstream. It's not about profitability. You can see that from the spreads versus the operating rates over time. The data tell us mm. that. But suddenly dawned on me, well, it's not about profitability, it's about demand. There is simply isn't enough demand. So they have to cut. If you can't sell it, you can't, yeah. you can't produce it, can you? Yeah. So it's not about profits, which are off the charts weak. I mean, right. polypropylene margins were $185 a ton negative last week for injection grade in Northeast Asia. It's simply the fact there's no demand. And what's further surprising to me is despite big cuts in particularly polypropylene production, the market is still weak. So that tells you the extent to which 
demand that's been effective in China. Yeah. John, how much of this is affected by the Russia-Ukraine conflict that has been ongoing for most of the year? I think then you can turn the attention, therefore, to Europe more on that, because inflation is not an issue in China as much, and they're getting cheap euros, crude, and stuff like that's helping them. I mean, looking at Europe, that's big because of the demand destruction downstream in polyolefins. Even probably in average shopping basket sizes, the people are cutting back on the basics because of the cost of heating in the UK is, is off the charts higher than it was a year ago and across Europe. Right. So people are having to take the choice of cutting back on essential food shopping and paying the heating bills. Yeah. And of course, that's affecting pot. I mean, polyolefins demand again, and the durable goods applications into say autos is really struggling in in Europe. Mm. Um, So, hey John, how much of this is a function of production cuts because of lack of availability of feedstock or energy in the form of electricity um, and fuel to power, fuel boilers, and what have you? And how much of this is is demand destruction, or is it hard to separate? I think, I mean, at the moment, the, the gas storage levels in Europe are good. It's been a very mild early winter, and the yeah. gas price has more than half, doesn't it, since its peak. So at the moment, there's not that much pressure on producers in terms of gas costs and supply, as there was a few months ago. Okay. So it's not a production. I mean, we, all, we all thought there was a scenario where this winter we'd see major production cutbacks, even whole complexes, very integrated complexes closing down. You reach a certain operating rate, you've got to close, haven't you? Yeah. And then particularly in Germany, where over the years of the move from fuel oil to gas to fire the furnaces to get the 80 degrees centigrade or whatever it is, very high temperatures. So it's very dependent. Germany's very dependent on Russian gas, not just from the grid, but for the furnaces. But that hasn't transpired. So I think the issue more is demand. And in terms of, yes, the margins have come down. You look at our average variable cost margins for the polyethylenes and polypropylene in Europe. Unlike Asia, they're still making money, but they're much lower than they were. Yeah. And, of course, they've got energy surcharges as well. So they're introducing those surcharges to customers, which may or may not be included in our base price. Complicated. Yeah, yeah, that's a hard one sometimes to factor. It is. I think it's more of demand destruction at the moment, Victoria. But you talk to our gas team, and they're saying that we're not out of the woods yet with this winter. It'll get a lot colder. Yeah, I mean, it's still early, right? Several more months to go. Yeah. Yeah, it could get a lot colder. And Russia may reduce gas flows through Ukraine. They're threatening to do that. And there may be a problem in the build up to next winter, depending on how much demand is reduced and there's just lack of LNG supply and regasification terminals and distribution of, I mean, like Spain's got lots of regasification terminals, but no pipelines to link to Northern Europe. So, so the gas team say, watch for next winter. So I think there's a European production problem for chemicals potentially next winter and possibly later this winter. But at the moment, I see more. So you think there might be a one year delay or one year lag in some of these production issues? I think that's we've got to watch that. And of course, the other thing for Europe is supply that obviously people are driving. So the refinery feedstocks are coming back, they're flying. So you get more availability of naphtha as they run kerosene and diesel and gasoline. And the US production, well, it had to be better than last year <laughs> because last year was 
the Texas winter storm, your hurricanes, and so they still have those logistics issues that are restricting U.S. exports, which you know very well, the trucks and the rail cars and yeah. the warehouses. And everything. Yeah. But you look at the data for polyethylene exports, and it's significantly up this year, and you've got new startups, haven't you? So that's kind of easing the supply side of Europe as demand destruction hits at the downstream level. I think one of the things I've been talking a lot about is the incredibly high premiums for Europe and the rest of the world over China. Yeah. So talk more about that. What are you seeing as premiums? I mean, I think everybody's seeing some premiums and maybe some kind of just more regional market activity as opposed to global driving. But what do you see as some of these differentials or just? Yeah, it was a container rate being so high and lack of container space. So that meant that oversupply was essentially trapped in, in, in Northeast Asia. As China was slowing down through 2022, in fact, from April 2021 onwards, China was decelerating versus the peak pandemic demand as supply increased. And that oversupply was trapped, in essence, in Northeast Asia because the big exporters couldn't move that supply to other regions because of the cost and availability of container freight. Yeah. And I think Europe was kept tight by, the Western Hemisphere was kept tight by the winter storm, et cetera. And all the pandemic stimulus that was flowing through economies still then. So, I mean, I'm looking at high-density polyethylene injection grade. The average Northwest European November 2002 to December 2020 premium was $280 a tonne. Between 1 January 2021 and the 25th of November last week, $683 a tonne. So that's wow. Huge so it's increase. almost tripled, or it's gone up two hundred fifty percent. The pricing exactly. premium, yeah. And the question I keep asking is, will premiums come down to historic long term levels, and what would that mean for you? It's Europe a magic question, John. I sure. I think everybody wants to know that question. Yeah, and then you look at India, you look at Pakistan, you look at Vietnam, you look at Peru, <laughs> Mexico, Brazil, all yeah. see the same dynamics. Essentially, mm. I think U.S. is a different market. Yeah. Yeah. So, John, what's what about the Middle East, right? I mean, for years, Middle East was the low-cost production center. They were the exporters to the world. And yet, I don't kind of nobody talks about it anymore. What do you see happening um, there? Are they still I mean, just chugging still, along uh, yeah. quietly? What's changed, if anything? I think that if you look at Saudi, it's the most important, biggest producer right. in the Middle East. I mean, it's looking at polypropylene. They're very diversified, in the, mm. they're not that dependent on China. You said they've got amazing production costs over there, as you say, but only 6% of their production of polypropylene is dependent on exports to China. Only 6% of their total exports go to China, right? Mm. I haven't got the data for Abu Dhabi yeah. and all QA, but it's really that Saudi position on polypropylene, similar on polyethylene. Um, so they're more diversified, they're sent to more regions. So that's good. But you know, the problem for them still is the loss of that China market. With polypropylene, China probably becoming a net exporter next year, which is extraordinary because in 2021, it was 42% of total net imports globally going to net exports in 2023. It'd be stunning, wouldn't it? Stunning turnaround. So they would still need to place those other volumes, missing volumes to China in the other big net import markets like Turkey, Europe, Indonesia, Vietnam, et cetera. So, yeah. But they're still in a better position than... And it's because of the links with Europe, right? But I think the okay. challenge there for the Middle East is if those European premiums come down and China stays where it is. And there's two scenarios for next year, I think. And the Middle East has got to think about this, right? Scenario one is to get past zero COVID. 
And then if European premiums come down over China, so what? Because China's coming up. Yes. China's rising, yes. massive boom in demand. Chemical prices will go really strongly up. No question about it across the board. Yeah. If they don't get past zero COVID, oversupply continuing, then those premiums will start coming down. And what does that do to the Middle East profitability, even with the gas advantage? Because they'll be making so much more money in Europe versus China because of those premiums, right? right. And in Latin American markets and in Turkey, etc. That's the challenge, I think, for all producers, but even for the feedstock advantage. So that's scenario one. Yeah, What's your scenario two? I think scenario two is zero cover comes to an end, as I said, and we're off to the races again. But I still think that you've got to think about common prosperity and structural long-term slowdown in China and its rising self-sufficiency will remain long-term challenges for us. Certainly see a big bounce if they get past it. So, John, I think this whole topic of structural long-term slowdowns, maybe a strong word, but less demand or flattening of demand. So if we think about some of the drivers going on globally, sustainability, a drive towards circularity, lot of pressure on producers, especially those that are tied to the stock market, which is, say, the U.S. and European folks, and maybe China less so, although they have some different drivers. Some people would say we should be flattening polymer demand, polyethylene, polypropylene, and yet we still see growth, right? So Shell just started up its big polyethylene plant in the U.S., and of course, that decision was made Years ago, it takes a while to get there. Chevron and Qatar just announced a big investment, right? So there's a lot of investments going on. Where's all the polymer going? Is there really a long-term slowdown? Is the demand shifting in regions? Where's the product going? Good question. I mean, I'm going to look at the, our data quickly because this is quite extraordinary. And I thought, is this right? I double-checked it and it's right based on our supply demand database. Let's look at high-density polyethylene, right? Between... 2020-21, annual capacity in excess of global demand was 4 million tonnes a year. Between 2022 and 2025, it rises to 11 million tonnes a year, polypropylene. 2020-21, 7 million tonnes a year, 20 million tonnes a year between 2022 and 2025. Wow. So That's for polypropylene? Yeah, polypropylene. Wow. Is, we, we talked before the podcast about being the problem child for all other reasons. So th- these are in enormous numbers and changes. So I... I think the low carbon thing is really important because the Chevron project with Qatar has highlighted low carbon. The Ineos project at Antwerp is talking about low carbon based on ethane feedstock and the ability to, to go to green hydrogen when that, if that works out at that same site and some recycling, some substantial recycling as well. So I think yeah. sustainability around, there's also the Canadian project that Dow's planning as well, talks about low carbon with e-crackers, nuclear nuclear reactors to, to power the furnaces and carbon capture and storage and eventually hopefully green hydrogen if that works all these things plus separate challenges with recycling plastic rubbish isn't it yeah maybe we're talking about a world in which there will be growth it will be lower and be more regional because europe will still need to import a lot of polymers right? if you look at our data out of 2040 huge amount of linear low h and pp low europe's an s exporter so where's it going to come from? Well, if Europe carries on its current course, I don't see any reason why it won't. They might have a carbon border adjustment mechanism. You've got the brand owners committed to reducing carbon as well as dealing with plastic waste. Right. Um, the producers respond so that Europe becomes a market 
which you know sets a higher price on carbon or a higher mm-hmm. value to reducing carbon. And so that still will be a market that will grow okay, won't it, long term? You'll still need lots of polymers, right? Yeah, that's um, interesting. Yeah. Is that the play? That will we see well, less efficient capacity shut down? Yeah. Does ICIS track that? Do you track the as kind of almost a different price set, low carbon polymers or the sources, right? So I would imagine, and maybe there's not enough volume at this point in time to do anything with that, but is that part of your future plans to be able to track, let's just say traditional HDPE and then a low carbon HDPE that's produced via circularity or incorporates other carbon capture, other technologies that make it more sustainable, if you will? We started to, yeah. Uh, we've got a joint venture with a German company called Carbon Mines, right? Okay. And we've got our supply and demand database, which has got all the plants and projects in the world. And the Carbon Mines team have the expertise to look at the different technology, different technologies, different process technologies. And we've got sort of third-party data upstream to oil and gas extraction, but we look at primarily the polymer plant and we compare different processes, different technologies in different regions. Mm and in different energy sources. So, for example, in China, we know that polypropylene is 11 times worse for carbon if it's coal versus PDH, although China itself is at a disadvantage globally because it uses most of its energy via coal, right, full stop. Right. And we know that the U.S. is in a very advantaged position relative to other regions because of the gas-based production, same as the Middle East. So we have the data on every polymer plant in the world which you know is going to be really important information for your converters and processors in Europe and for your brand owners. This is third-party secondary data, so it's scope three emissions. If you look at it from the perspective of the downstream companies, right, so that's scope three for them, isn't it? Their suppliers. Right. A lot of people will say, "Well, I have our, we have our primary data," and they'll say, "We know better about our carbon emissions than anybody else." So a big polymer producer will know better. Personally, feel that there will be an alignment between primary and secondary data where individual companies will have their own standards, which is fine, but we need to standardize enough to compare across companies to give it that extra stamp of credibility. I'm not saying it's not credible already. Companies doing a great job, but I think we can make it better and stronger by having international comparisons of carbon. And then you can really start thinking, are we, are we moving in the right direction globally? So I think yes. this is the first step of the ISIS and it will evolve but it's a, it's, it's, it's a good, very good start, I think. And I think this will become critical. You start looking at... Is that information yeah, yet publicly available or available to your customers? Or is yes, it still in development? Joint, it is available. Okay. We have a joint venture with Carbon Mines. And yes, we can. you can subscribe to it through ICIS. Right. So happy to present to any customers who are interested. I'll get the experts from Journey to present, not me. I'm not an expert on this at all, but they can present how it works. But... I don't know, Victoria. I do think this might maybe the logic behind these new projects. And I mean, in, in Saudi, that they've committed that the next cracker, all future crackers will be low carbon in Saudi. And you've got the Sabic joint venture on e-crackers as well. And yeah. certainly all any investment in Europe will have to be low carbon. And I think they might be retrofitting old capacity to make it low carbon as well. So is that the future in a more self-sufficient China and a lower growth? So it's interesting to mm-hmm. speak to the C-suites and see what they think. But you would think on the surface, logically, why would you announce these big new projects? But I think that's the driver. And the developing world, sorry, finally. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, developing no, I, I don't know what the driver. 
I'm with you on it, John, but I think some of this, the economics don't match up and some of the announcements are indications as opposed to certainties, right? So there's a lot, there's a lot of hope out there, but you know, even I've seen different things or hear from different experts and something like 50% of the technologies that we need to accomplish some of these sustainability targets and carbon targets, et cetera, haven't even been discovered, right? So there's steps in the right direction, but it's not solutions. It's not holistic solutions. Yeah. And I know that Dow, I think Axon have talked about the need for stable prior carbon pricing regime or clear carbon pricing regime, sorry, in, yeah. in the US to have carbon capture up in Houston. There's a technology issue, isn't it, as well, Victoria, but the, the actual regulatory issue is another thing. Yeah. Well, and I would imagine at some point when there is disparity, the approaches in terms of how products are actually produced, what's produced under low carbon and what's not, that'll further regionalize the markets. Yeah. And I think CBAM will be a barrier that exporters have to overcome. Yeah, absolutely. It's a standard they have to overcome. And if that does happen, not certainly will happen to chemicals, but possibly by 2026. Yeah. You certainly, and the, the big thing again, as always, is China. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Talking about carbon in a big way. And if China were to go for it, and it would fit with the need to escape the middle income trap with the manufacturing value chain and come on, prosperity is about cleaning up the environment, international commitments to carbon. If they went for it in a big way and started making their chemicals industry low carbon while also pushing our modern recycling industry, which they're already doing to some extent. Imagine the effect globally that happened. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I do think, John, though, and this is maybe we even need to push this into another another podcast episode because we're going to run long, as we always do, and that's fine. But I think there's this view that actually China is going to be retiring more people and more workers than they're bringing into the system, right? That the one-child regime, as it's managing and controlling population, that China population is actually going to decline. So when I think about some of the low carbon technologies and where they fit, not necessarily in polymers, but if you think about more broadly across the chemical industry, a lot of it is actually far less efficient. So how China is able to bring on the low carbon technologies that maybe are less efficient at a time when the workforce is diminishing as well, what does it do? Is it going to happen or is there maybe that drives innovation and a different solution? Yeah, it's a really good point. It's a separate subject, but then you get onto how global regulations develop. If we end up with a global price on carbon, it moves the cost curve sufficiently, then it would work for China, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's true. You know what? You're right. That's what changes the game is the uh, the carbon price and the shift. And they could, they could make price. it domestically. They could do a lot to do that. And if they were then demanding low carbon imports, and they'll still have to import a lot of polyethylene. I mean, I talk about self sufficiency, mm-hmm. but. But the polyethylene is they'll still be a big importer for the next 20 years, right. we think. Well, I suppose a big growth in recycling might reduce those imports, absolutely. But it might be we'd only take it from low carbon sources. That would reinforce that, wouldn't it? The local yeah. producers would then match their own CBAP, wouldn't they, in terms of price premiums, maybe. Lots so of changes in the future. Yeah. So I'd love to speak to the CEOs of Chevron and Dow. Maybe they'll talk to us on the next podcast. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah, there we go, John. That would be good. Get- some insights. So let's bring it back closer to home. We are about to enter 2023. What's your prediction? What should we be looking for over the next year? A razor-like focus 
on the government messaging about zero COVID, any reports you can get your hands on on the extent to which they've, they've bridged the gap in terms of healthcare provision, in terms of sufficient vaccinations for the over sixes and over eighties, because be careful what you wish for. If they suddenly said zero COVID is over, you get this big exit wave. So you can't see that being a benefit, can you? you go backwards, yeah. you go forwards and backwards, wouldn't you, very quickly? Yeah. So that's the key, because then the savings rates are very high in China. They're not spending money. You think those the willingness to spend money when zero COVID ends will be will tempered by the, the, the end of the property bubble. True, but people will still come out and spend money. And this is very difficult, but we've got to yeah. talk about it political unrest in China, social unrest, as we've seen the last few days. Mm. We need to watch that very closely yeah, because now there's been some really serious issues in Shanghai. So, but I'd say in terms of chemical prices, watch zero COVID. In terms of Europe, watch demand destruction versus the support that will be offered to pricing, if that's the right term, <laughs> by energy-related production cutbacks. I mean, obviously, it wouldn't do much for the profitability of producers, but it would certainly support the markets, wouldn't they, in a, yeah. in a I suppose, negative way. And I suppose the other thing to watch out is how the US is able to export your logistics issues because you've got a lot more polymers and you're moving to a, a stronger net export position on polypropylene because there's new projects going on stream the next few years. So you right. think you're already a net exporter, aren't you? But it's increasing, isn't it, over the next couple of years. Yeah. So that's something else to yeah. watch and how that affects the global market. Yeah. And where do we see inflation in all of this? Good news, I think. I was reading again in the Financial Times this morning that it looks like, well, container freight rates, now the FT say are back towards pre-pandemic levels. It was five times higher, according to their estimate. Maybe not on all routes, but average. I think the high oil prices are a cure for high oil prices, aren't they? So we've got demand destruction. Yes, they are. Case. I think always the danger of more geopolitically driven energy disruptions, which could add to the energy costs, they're still very mm -hmm. high. But we seem to be past peak inflation, I'm hoping. So that's a positive thing. Maybe towards the middle of next year, end of next year, we see that inflation pressure coming off in the West, and that will support some recovery. And going back to polymers, Victoria, we just have a huge amount of overcapacity. And, yeah. you know, that 2020-25 period, you would say 2020 two to 2025 period I was talking about, we have 20 million tonnes a year of overcapacity in polypropylene, which is a record high. You'd think that most of the steel is in the ground, wouldn't you, for that period, if you're... Yes, um, yeah, I would assume of, that most of that is is on its way, being built. So it has to happen. We have, out of 2022, 2030, we have 80 million tonnes of surplus capacity, but you would think a lot of that mm. could get postponed. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's always the opportunity for rationalization, for assets yeah. shutting down. Kind of depends on where they are in terms of location and how they fit on the cost curve, right? Because that's the other solution to overcapacity is just getting yeah. rid of capacity. I think so. I mean, we've been talking about some of the sort of, I suppose, Northeast Asian asset, ex-China, being under pressure for many years. Yeah. So we may see some rationalization there. Not sure about Europe. It's interesting whether some of the older crackers there might be under pressure. Maybe. I mean, they've rationalized a lot of them already. So True. I don't know what's left True. to rationalize. Maybe not much, but something has to give. These are extraordinary numbers. Maybe de-bottlenecking's. We need to go through our project database, I think, and see what is new, what's really happening, what's a de-bottlenecking that could be delayed, and then maybe some net numbers mm. versus 
some scenarios where we could reduce that oversupply, I think, as you say, also rationalization. Well, and I would imagine, depending on how some of these advanced recycling projects develop, a capacity is not always capacity, John, right? So some capacity actually operates much slower, depending on what's being produced. So it's not clear to me how some of that's playing out and if that will have an effect as well on net capacity. Yeah. We prorate over a few years, and I think mm-hmm. looking at the US projects, and you've got 120 this year, 320 next year, up to a million tons, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And that might be staggered more conservatively, I guess. Yeah, probably. It's easy to announce, it's harder to build. Yeah. And then harder to operate under these conditions. Absolutely. Harder to build as well as an issue. We may have issues Absolutely. around building as well as operating, the technical issues around building and starting up on schedule. Yeah. I mean, the big issue is China's, which one is it? I think it's polypropylene. Now, one of the polymers, I'm not going to say which one it is, is another 16% capacity increase next year. That's a lot. <laughs> which one it is, I can't recall. So they're going to have to think very hard now, aren't they? Because mm-hmm. it's all well and good. And we want to be the exporter of, say, polypropylene, but where are they going to sell it? And at what netbacks, especially so if the netbacks are, yeah, and the netbacks are falling. China's polypropylene exports have been going up and then they've started coming down since April because the netbacks are coming down because China pricing is dragging the rest of the world close to its level, you see. So that will have an effect next year and they'll maybe moderating their op- I mean, Anyway, our base case operating rates for China polymers are the lowest we've seen since 2000, our estimates for next year. So like 79%, 77%, 78%, very low mm. operating rate. Yeah which reflects, I think, the economics. So something has to give, doesn't it? We get back into balance. Maybe that's the theme for 2023. Something has to give. Yeah. Well, time will tell. Well, John, thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Appreciate having you on The Chemical Show, sharing your insights once again. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Absolutely. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We will talk to you again next time. Thank you. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.